Hello, it's Fangraphs Audio. Carson Sestouli. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is Kyla McDaniel. Kyla McDaniel, of course, is the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. He is, as I say, the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. <clears throat> and in what follows, he discusses uh, a number of topics germane to the art and science of prospect analysis, including, for example, uh, Byron Buxton. He has received a very optimistic projection care of the ZIPS projection system that serves as an entree into a discussion about Byron Buxton and, and why wouldn't anyone want to have that discussion. Also discussed uh, what makes a catching prospect. There are a number of uh, above-average athletes currently in the minor leagues who are catchers. And why are they catchers as opposed to uh, some other sort of position on the baseball field. Also discussed uh, grading the tools of major leaguers, grading the tools of major leaguers. That's a project that Kylie McDaniel would like to undertake. Quantitative analysis can help us in it. It's not the end-all, be-all, but, uh, but it could be of some assistance uh, to that end, to that end. Um, those, that, those are all things that's happening, and that, that, that's a discussion to follow with Kylie McDaniel. Before that, uh, as, he, as he has many other weeks, Kyle Mantino has provided a musical interlude. So what you'll hear is uh, that musical interlude, uh, courtesy, I believe, the, uh, I should say, uh, courtesy American R&B group Blackstreet, American R&B group Blackstreet, their song No Diggity, uh, the, that's the musical interlude. And then you'll hear that conversation with Kyle Mantino. I'm Carson Stooley. This is Fangraphs Audio. Thank you. Play on, play on, play on, play on. Drop the verse. It's going down, fate to Black Street. The homies got at me, collab creations. Bump like agony, no doubt. I put it down, never slouch. As long as my credit can vouch, a dog couldn't catch me. Tell me who could stop with Dre making moves, attracting honeys like a magnet, giving them orgasms with my mellow accent. Still moving this flavor okay. with the homies Black Street and Teddy. The Are you in your new place? I am. How are the, uh, I'm going to say autistics. How are the, <laughs> How are the autistics? I don't know. I don't know if they appreciate being referred to like that. Uh, it might be insensitive. Not the worst, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, what do you mean, you people? <laughs> Sorry. I was actually recently with my uh, – my grandfather has remarried to a lovely woman, uh, but my wife and I were having a conversation with them, and she kept referring to my wife and me as you people. She said, she said, oh, well, what do you people like to do for fun? And I couldn't help but think. I was like – She's white, we're white, but is she somehow being racist? Well, she's talking about people that subscribe to The New Yorker. She heard the last podcast. Oh, that's true. Oh, speaking of it, hey, The New Yorker, what a great magazine. Oh, good. <laughs> or do we want to go the other way and say The New Yorker, written with child labor? No, I don't, I, I don't think we could. I don't think they would like that. I, don't, I mean, I, I don't think they would respond to it. That is so New Yorker of them to not appreciate that. Good point. Um, so, but your, your new place, the, yeah, the acoustic sounds fine. I can hear the room a little bit. My guess is you don't have a lot in the way of, uh, wall hangings yet. Is that right? I don't. And it's actually all, almost all, and actually, no, it is all wood floors and I only have a couple sort of carpets down and I don't have anything on the wall. So I imagine it might, and it's also a very high ceiling. So I imagine it might be a little echoey. Yeah. There's a bit of an echo, but we're all going to deal with it. We're dealing with, we are ensconced in reality right now. People, sure. That's actually the name of my building. <laughs> Which part? The reality? Any part that I'm in is just called reality. You, mm. you suddenly are aware of where you are in life and how you got here. Yeah. Let me uh, let me ask you – let's get started. You ready? 
I, I thought say, we already did, but yeah, go ahead. The, well, no, I want to say, so today we did, uh, uh, we published at the site the Zips projections for the Twins. I had nothing to do with that, to be fair. Right, you didn't, but... You, you said, said we, so I, I don't know. Uh, I would say we, we who are employees of Fingerefs. We, what did you mean, yes, in French? The collectors. Sorry, I'm interrupting you now. <laughs> the, um, the projections for the Twins are not, uh, are not optimistic. I noticed last night on Twitter that you said these are the rough projections and I was going to make the joke. You mean very rough projections. Yeah, yeah, and yes, yes. And some people caught on to that. Of course, I use the same terminology for every one of those tweets. Uh, but yes, in this particular case, that was probably the appropriate reaction. Um, a thing, um, one good thing, though, is that – so the Byron Buxton uh, projection is curious for, I guess, a couple of reasons. Um, oh, I didn't well, see that. One is – well, he's projected for two wins. Two wins in fewer than 400 plate appearances. And that's, that's a little rich, but not completely unreasonable. Right. So, so the interesting thing is, right, and uh, we can get to Lucas Giolito in a second uh, because Giolito has also received well, received a very positive steamer projection. But um, Buxton has not played a lot above high A. And, and by not a lot, I mean he's had three plate appearances. Yeah, do, do they take into account uh, how much he's played at each level, or do they just assume everyone's healthy all the time because it'd be too hard to do it otherwise? Yeah, no, no. Well, there's definitely a level penalty, right? So if you produce – if a guy produces a – and you see it a lot in BABIP in particular. Like if a guy produces a 300 BABIP at high A, like his major league BABIP projection will be like 230 or something. This is These are just um, – Yeah. Off the uh, – um, these are not rigorous examples. I'm I assume saying. nothing you say is actually correct. Right, but the Babbitt penalty is usually pretty strong, as are the other ones. <clears throat> um, uh, Buxton had, a, had uh, following a promotion to high A in 2013, he was very good at that level. And, of course, he was only, ni- he was only 19, so that's also probably going to help him as well. But uh, he only had – he did not even have uh, like 150 penalty appearances this year, and that was at high A. And um, he was not exceptional there, and yet uh, his projection is quite good. It probably, I guess, it, my guess is it probably knows how good he's been at certain levels at such a young age. Yeah, that's what I was going to assume. Is it had good good age for level, good sort of speed and power scores, and everything seems to look up. And I don't know if they factor in. Uh, like I know some of some of these systems, but I don't know which ones uh, will factor in. You know, fastball velocity or prospect rankings or whatever. I'm not sure if that one does or doesn't. Yeah, I don't think zip. I don't think zip steps, but I think that you're. Yeah, I guess it. It. I guess it's just interesting the degree to which Zips has picked up on the fact that uh, that Buxton is so very good. Um, when you know, certainly his 2014 uh, his his statistical output did not probably does not represent that. Yeah, uh, but I would also say that if you go back and look at the minor league performance of current big league stars, there may be some not, like I remember Justin Upton's debut in low A was kind of terrible and people were starting to write him off as, you know, sort of a Donovan Tate type guy or, you know, heading that way at least. Mm -hmm. And then he came back the next year and was just like ridiculously good, which is, that's kind of the thing that scouts have in mind when they'll tell you like, oh, this guy got drafted and then his velo was down that summer and then he was kind of bad his first full season and kind of put on some weight, kind of got homesick, like all that kind of stuff. And they're like, man, this guy doesn't sound like he's cut out for baseball. But they're like, but Justin Upton, maybe not those exact things, but basically had a crappy first full year and then he became Justin Upton so some of these guys they just sort of need a tough year 
Um, right. And I know so, that you... So, so knowing, I guess, using the comparables and knowing that some really good players have a bad year and seeing that this guy checks all the boxes at a young age, you're like, oh, this guy could be really good. Right. And it, it, I guess it, it should also be noted, uh, Upton was also, Upton was even younger for his levels uh, than was than was Buxton. Because he, he, he ended up making it to, he made it to double A all the way by age 19, uh, which is pretty great. And what? And even that first year in 2006, uh, looking at it now, he wasn't terrible. He maybe just didn't. It was bad versus expectations, I would assume. Yeah, right, okay, I, I yeah. didn't look at it specifically. Right, right. No, no, no. That's fine. Because nothing it, I say is correct either. Right. Oh uh, yeah, but he was. Oh god, he was so good. Justin Upton was. He was. I think he was like one of the original examples of the guy that got invited to a bunch of these, uh, you know, uh, summer showcases as a freshman and sophomore in high school, and was sometimes the best player on the field. And the list of guys that have done that is like Alex Jackson, Bryce Harper, Justin Upton, Eric Hosmer, and that's pretty much it. Eric, Eric, wait, Alex Jackson, the guy that went sixth overall this past year. Oh, okay. Oh, so well, that's good. I'm glad that uh, we can get to this because, it, you know, for uh, no, I care quite a bit about prospects, but but <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but for me, um, um, I I'm, I have not uh, my awareness of. Um, the new draftees, in particular the ones who, who are merely, you know, who, who are high school prospects, um, is not particularly excellent. Um, you know, usually because, especially for high school, like it's really hard to find video of them, like you know, to, to sit down and watch a game. You know what I'm saying? I was um, going to say the Fangraphs YouTube pages and going to change that. Well, which is great. Which is great. Um, but in, you know, in for a college player, like if you sort of pay attention even vaguely to uh, the College World Series, like I think that you end up seeing a bunch of guys who end up being major leaguers, um, or certainly are are within the first five rounds of the draft. Uh, of course, it is harder to, to see high school players like that. But can you tell us a little bit about Alex Jackson? Yeah, he's uh, he's really good. He's like a plus bat speed. Already has feel to hit in games to the opposite field. You know, some bat control. Like checks all those boxes. Sixty sixty five raw power. Sixty sixty five arm strength. Uh, probably fringe to below average runner and was originally a catcher that obviously the arm strength played and he would flash like ridiculous pop times like in the one sevens and one eights which is you know like would convert to a you know plus throwing time like Pudge Rodriguez is like the best of all time and he'd be like high one sixes one sevens that's kind of where like Johnny Bench and Pudge are Mm -hmm. and then like really good guys in the big leagues right now like the Molinas are like one seven maybe one eight and he in sort of non-competitive environments could sh- could show you that, but then obviously it'd be higher when you're sort of in a game situation and a full squat and all that. Uh, and he had, like, enough ability behind the plate to conceivably be a catcher, but it was a little rough and it probably wouldn't be better than average. Uh, but he falls in that same category as Kyle Schwarber and Will Myers and Bryce Harper, where it's his bat's going to be ready, like, two years before his defense is, and he's, like, a super elite bat let's not kid ourselves and set him back and maybe get him hurt and all that sort of stuff. Let's just go stick him in the outfield and let him play. And so I already made one call on the Mariners, and I sort of asked that question. And they were like, yeah, no, we we knew he could catch, but we never even really considered putting him back there. It's just like if we're taking him this high we think he's going to hit, let's go let him hit. Why would we do that? And, you know, it's funny. We were talking about the Twins, too. Of course, uh, Joe Maurer was a a fantastic – has been uh, in the past a fantastic player. Um, and has been, I think, an above-average defensive catcher. That seemed, I mean, that's what the metrics bear out. Does that seem to be the reputation as well? 
yeah. Although, what, yeah, as an amateur, I'm assuming what you're getting to is because he was so tall, everyone assumed he would regress and not play catcher, which I guess in some ways has happened. Right, right. Either that, I mean, a lot of that has to do with the concussion problems. Yeah, um, I was going to say, it wasn't necessarily for the right reasons. but Right, but but it, to your point, though, if you're to wait, if you're going to wait on someone, so here seems to be another risk because, and, and this is what happened to Mauer, right, is because the catcher position does... It's, it can be something more than just wear and tear, right? It could be something like getting a concussion. You, I mean, obviously, any position, you know, at some some level has some level of exposure or risk for that, but catchers have more. And so you could wait those two years for the glove to catch up to the bat, but then there's also that probability, probably a higher probability than other positions, that an injury related to playing that position will will render him unable to play at that position. He'll have to go back to the other position that he that he was playing originally anyway. Yeah, and there's been plenty of prospects that have had either concussion stuff or just sort of normal wear and tear as a catcher kind of undermine them. I know uh, Tommy Joseph went from catcher of the future to I don't think even made the Phillies list for me, or maybe he's in the others or something. But there's been a number of guys that will kind of get to around double A, be in the system you know, three, four years, kind of be knocking on the door, and then stuff just kind of falls apart. I guess, yeah, there's, there's been some other guys, and obviously there's been some big league examples of guys that'll be there for a while, and I guess Maurer's a high-profile one. And, yeah, the idea was he's so big that it'll create stress on his frame. He can, he'll be hit proportionately by more foul balls because he takes up more space. It'll be causing more stress on his body where he'll need more off days. Uh, you know, it's just sort of all that stuff into he's too big. Right. Uh, and I guess it's, it kind of caught what actually happened, although it didn't wasn't exactly correct. You know, you mentioned I hadn't even thought about that. One of the questions about size, I, I understand the squatting, but just the fact that he takes up more space is also something that makes him more susceptible to getting hit by foul balls. R- yeah. Really, if you were to, if you could genetically engineer, a, I'm not even going to call it a human, but like a human-like creature to catch. <laughs> Man, really, we're really getting off of baseball, aren't we? Well, no, really, you just want. But this is like the future. This is the future. You really, you just want a, an arm. You just want two arms, basically, I guess, right? In a semi- dystopic hellscape where pitch for <laughs> catchers have no torso. <laughs> right. Yeah. You just want like a, a left, you know, an arm so it can catch. And you then want Michael arm- Flatley, Lord of the Dance, to just be two legs, right? <laughs> well, yeah, we, we could do we could do that. I, I'm sorry. I have not thought a lot about Lord of the Dance, so. <laughs> That's fine. I don't know if I want a torso. Well, you probably haven't watched a lot of Friends reruns recently, have you? Because Chandler <laughs> is really unnerved by what that guy does with his legs. Is it just, does he not move above the waist? Is that yeah, kind of part it's, of it? It's his two legs are like furiously moving at a very high rate and no other part of his body is moving and he's like smiling and it's really awkward. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah. So, all right. So flatly. So yes, yeah, so there's a comparison there. But if you were to engineer a, a human-like organism to, to be the ideal catcher, you would just, you'd want a couple of arms really. And then, and then some sort of stand or some some sort of leg type structure, right? But nothing, but small, not not that big at all. Well, yeah. So it also comes down to the like you'll talk about how uh, you know baseballs become specialized. That center field is typically uh, you know this kind of body, and you'll see a guy walk on the field and be like, oh, that guy's not a center fielder. And every now and then you'll have an exception like uh, Cameron Maben. He's not supposed to be that tall, but it worked, even though he couldn't hit. And Pablo Sandoval is not supposed to be able to play third and be that fat, but he can. And so with catcher, it's the problem is the reason that there's, you know, typically the Molina, I'm thinking Jose Molina type body, is because being that big of a frame makes it easier to deal with those dings and dents. 
Right. Uh, right. And also having, now that framing has become a big thing, having the ability to move your hand but make it appear that your hand isn't moving is easier when you're huge. (laughs) And no one cares if you can hit anymore. And so if you're huge, we don't care if you're slow or if you can't hit. So huge seems to be the preference. But ideally, you're talking about Yadier Molina or Pudge, where it's just big enough that he won't break down, and but athletic enough that he can run a little bit and can stay in shape and can hit and has some power and is kind of loose. And you'd love if he could run. And like, there's sort of Jason Kendall on that kind of guy. That's sort of the ideal that can do everything. But I think people have just give, like <laughs> baseball teams have settled. We're not gonna fu- we're not gonna have it all, as it were. We're just gonna have to settle, and if we're gonna settle, Jose Molina is the easiest thing to settle for. He's sort of the girl at the end of the bar at 3 a.m. It's like, hey, what are you doing later? I'm going to excuse that. It could be a boy. First of all, it could be a boy at the end of the bar. <laughs> you're right. Yeah, it could right. be a boy. It's basically what you're talking about is a set of people with lowered expectations. Yes. Right. If you want to know what lowered expectations look like, look at Jose Molina. <laughs> okay. Especially, especially at 3 a.m. Especially <laughs> at the end of a bar at 3 a.m. Yeah. Um, here, uh, that's fair. I'll accept that. Uh, I think we've saved that. The uh, This is an unfair question, but when you mentioned a, a different sort of body type that might have kept caught you – know, of course, you, you, met, you mentioned Jason Kendall. I was also thinking of Craig, early Craig Biggio. Who caught for the first uh, three or four years of his career? I liked him better before he sold out and stopped playing catcher. Do you do you happen to remember, uh, or do you do you recall why why he moved off of catcher? I'm, I, I recognize I'm putting you on the spot. You may not. Remember. I'm not even sure I was alive then. I don't, you may not have been alive then. I'm just wondering if if somehow uh, you. From ever what came... I recall, it was could play second, could maybe play center, could definitely play any corner position, could catch. And I believe it was either there was some sort of kind of injury scare or some sort of ding or dent that had him out of the lineup. And they're like, well, screw this. Let's let him play every day. Go put him in second. That's still right. pretty useful. Right. And that, or at least that's how it's been relayed to me because there have been other guys like your, your boy Austin Barnes is sort of like that. And there's a kid that uh, turned down seven figures out of high school that's now at Clemson named Chris Oakey that will probably go in the top 50 picks in a year or two. Mm-hmm. I guess two years. He's a sophomore this year. Uh, who was a – like average, maybe even slightly above average runner and was at least an average receiver with an above average arm and could really make contact but didn't really have a lot of power at a high school. I believe he wanted a million and a half and like turned down like 1.2 or something like that. Like he's a very legit prospect that would have gone in the top 50 picks out of high school. And that was some of the same discussion with him. Hey, this guy's an average runner. He could play in some places and his career might be five years longer if he does it. That's obviously getting way ahead of yourself when you're picking a guy that's in high school. Uh, but it seems like there's a guy every handful of years uh, that, that fits that. And Jackson Reitz, uh, a guy I wrote a couple days ago with the Nationals, kind of fits some of that too, although I don't think he's played the infield. But he's up to like 92 on the mound and was an average runner at one point. I'm not sure if he still is. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's becoming more and more common to have those multi-sport athletes that can really run and show enough to catch to be drafted back there. Uh, and so they haven't been sort of worn down so much that they, you know, have turned into a below average runner yet. And then that question comes up, but it's so far down the road, all the people making the decision will have retired twice by then. So who really cares? It seems like some of these, you're mentioning a sort of crop of catchers who are more athletic. Um, is there, is there a reason why these kids are getting placed at catcher at a, at a you know, in high school? Well, because people are tired of uh, bringing Jose Molina home at 3 a.m., they're like, hey, that guy's kind of athletic. Let's try him back there. I mean, is there, but, but you could say, oh, that guy's kind of athletic. Let's try him in at shortstop or second base, or, you know, second base yeah, or center well, field. There's this, 
Yeah, this actually came up with the draft last year because the guy the Red Sox took in the first round, Michael Chavis, uh, I guess the quick report on him, he's, I would guess, 5'10", 215, uh, plus raw power, good feel for the bat head, definitely a bat over field guy, plays shortstop in high school, has a plus arm, is that sort of catcher-looking body, and doesn't quite have the foot speed to... Uh, to play short and maybe could play second, but most likely is a third baseman. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh well, let's let's assume if he catches that the bat will regress a little bit just because he's catching and you know all that stuff. But if he's a catcher and he's got 60 raw power and he's got some feel for the bat head, like that's a really good guy and he's got a plus arm. It should work. He's got the right body and he's you know great makeup, totally game guy. And so over the summer at one of these showcases, like, hey, why don't you go back behind the plate and just throw for us? Let's just see how it looks. And I wasn't at this event, but I was told at East Coast Pro he did that for some scouts, and they were like, oh, the arm strength doesn't play. Like, his arm action was a little too long. Like, he didn't really have, like, that sort of natural feel to get the ball behind his ear and throw it down. Didn't mm-hmm. quite look right. And part of the reason people didn't quite love him at shortstop because his hands were a little iffy. He kind of dropped some easy ones. Now, hands at shortstop is different than hands at catcher, but there are some things that are similar. And so there was enough stuff that he also had never really caught before that people were like, yeah, let's not really try that. I remember I talked to the Red Sox after they drafted them and like, yeah, no, we heard about that, but we're not going to do it. Similar to the Alex Jackson thing. We're pretty sure he could catch, but we took him in the first round because he could hit. And so let's let him hit. And if it turns out there's no spot for him and his, you know, he's like a quad A guy, maybe then we'll go teach him to catch and see if he could create some value for himself. But we're hoping we don't have to worry about it. Um, and that happens multiple times per draft. Like the Dodgers took a guy out of college, Kyle Farmer, that had played shortstop, made him a catcher, and now he's a legit guy. The Indians took a high school shortstop, Tony Walters, who now can catch. Oh, yeah. right, he's right, all right. right. And uh, there's one other one I'm forgetting. Oh, uh, Christian Arroyo was a first-rounder at a high school in Florida, a guy that I saw a lot that's kind of similar to Chavis, but not probably 50 raw power, not 60, but better hit tool. And they took him, and there were a lot of rumors and some indications from the Giants they wanted to make him a catcher, but he didn't want to catch. And so he's going to keep playing the infield, but I think they'd like to make him a catcher if he changes his mind or if things don't work out or whatever. And Avery Romero, another guy from Florida from the same draft year that I did with the Marlins list, there were teams that actually tried him behind the plate, and he wanted to do it, but he just wasn't quite good enough. And so now he's playing second and will probably end up at third. So I think because that bar is so low, the idea of a new guy back there Hey, if we put him back there for ten games and it actually works, he's athletic enough that you know he won't be one of these enormous guys that does nothing else. That could be really interesting. Let's try it. And so anyone that is not super tall and has a pretty good arm and decent hands and feet and seems like sort of a makeup guy or smart enough to handle it and has any kind of bad upside or even because they don't have any bad upside, just throw him back there and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And it's happening a lot. And there's guys that play left field in high school that get moved to catcher. Like there's a lot of it comes from weird places. Uh, but what about uh, have you seen uh, William Williams Estudio's body? Are you familiar with him? No, that is a weird question. <laughs> well, have you seen have you seen his? Uh, so, so Williams' studio. Uh, yeah, I, I do not know who that is. So keep okay, going. he's in the Phillies system, and uh, he was my guy. F- he was Sister Louis' guy for the fi- for your Phillies list. Yeah, and being in Tampa, you'd think I would have run into him in Clearwater, but maybe I have seen him before. I just didn't. He uh, he. <laughs> oh, let's see. So he led all qualified hitters in all professional baseball last year. Um, in uh, strikeout rate, um, he, was, he was playing for Class A Lakewood. I think he struck out. I mean, it was something like might have been like one percent of it played appearances or something like that. That's uh, no, true. Faith. No, better. Yeah, four, sorry, four point three, four point three percent strikeout rate, the best in all affiliated baseball. 
among qualified hitters. Uh, he is five, but he's five nine and 180 pounds, and is probably shorter than that and heavier than that. Um, if you if you just want to if you just Google yourself any image of Williams' studio, uh, you will see a funny a funny looking person. Uh, I'm actually laughing because that sounds like a Phil Collins song. <laughs> that's that's not bad. That's also from before you were born, by the way. Yeah, but I, I grew up on Michael Bolton and Phil Collins uh, being played over the speakers when I'd be in the pool as a, as, as a young lad. So oh, like you I know their discography very well. Sounds like you you had some some sexy evenings down there. Oh yeah, I, I can't wake up without hearing "Time, Love, and Tenderness" in my head. <laughs> the uh, so uh, so studio is funny though. I think he's he's played some catcher. Another another character who comes to mind um, was Do you remember Angel Salome? Oh, and to go back, I can confirm his body is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it is. A, yeah, it's not. It's not a typical body of an athlete. Although there is an amazing, I think because I believe he's Venezuelan. There's a there's a really good uh, video of him playing center field in the Venezuelan winter league, and he actually makes a nice catch. But um, the pitcher and I assume a bunch of other his teammates, like he makes a catch like jumping over the wall to save a home run, and the reaction by his pitcher is to laugh. Because <laughs> he doesn't really understand what's happening. His headshot for MILB.com looks like someone took a normal-sized face and like put a couple tortillas around it. Yeah, he's a, he's a, but he's got a, he's he can make contact, and so he's still playing baseball. Yeah, he's better than I am. I'll tell I'll tell you that. Yeah. Um, another, do you remember Angel Salome? Uh, vaguely, I believe I saw him, but I think a, his sort of prospect heyday was like three or four years ago, right? Yeah, and even maybe a little longer than that. I think he was on the 2000 and. Uh, eight list for 2000. Yeah, the 2008 prospect list for the Brewers. Yeah, I want to say I saw him either in high A or double A at one point. Yeah, he was in this Brewers system, and he was another guy who made. I think he made a little less contact, but he had really, uh, he had a promising offensive skill set, and but his body was also, um, I mean, it was a silly body that you just don't see at any outfield position, you know. Um, I can imagine it being the first line of like a because usually near the top of a scouting report for a team it'll be like biographical info and then it'll be physical description is before the tools and you yeah. just put silly body silly body moving yeah. on but he's listed so he's listed at Baseball Reference as five seven two hundred, um, which is though traditionally height and weight especially for especially weird looking players. Mm-hmm. Um, are what they were when they signed. Yeah. So when I worked for the Yankees, one of the first scouting reports I ever wrote was in Jose Tabata, was in the GCL in the backfield at 16. Mm-hmm. And I was writing up the report and wanted to do everything correctly, and so I like pulled up the roster height and weight, and he was at 5'10", 160. Mm-hmm. And he looked almost exactly the same in the GCL as he does in the, in the big leagues, to give you a mental picture. Mm-hmm. And I was like, there's no way he weighs that. And so I went over to the... So strength and conditioning guys, and I was like, "Hey, you guys have like a weigh-in? Do you do, do like daily weigh-ins?" They go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And I'm like, "What do you got on uh, on top of it?" And they showed it to me. It was like two thirteen or it was like off by fifty pounds. <laughs> and <laughs> he, he signed a- like three months ago. They clearly just made up a weight, and he was listed as five ten or five eleven, one sixty for like five years. And people would like quoted in articles, and I was like, "Have you ever seen this guy before?" So you give you an idea of where those come from. Like it gets updated when somebody in the office has nothing to do and feels like updating it, which is usually never. So wait, there was a third more Jose Tabata yeah. <laughs> by the time you yes. saw him. It's like yes. it's like at one time he was five ten or maybe I mean maybe at one point he was five ten, one sixty. But then No, I don't I, he might have been eleven when he was that size. <laughs> but but at some point after that there was a third more of him. Yeah, and well, there's also some compelling evidence that he's three to four years older than he is listed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he may have been 19 or 20 then. 
but he was also the same size six years after that. And even at 19 or 20, that's an, an unusual body. Yeah. But anyway, so that, that's why the height and weights can be a little, especially when you've got a guy that's kind of shaped like a, like a square. Yeah. You, the guys in the office aren't inclined to be like, hey, let's go figure out exactly how weird looking he is. <laughs> number on it. Like, they, they got better stuff to do. Can, can we render that into numbers so that the whole world can enjoy these measurements? And you also, guys that are 5'10 are almost always 6 foot. And, yeah, you get all the typical stuff. But, yeah, usually when a guy gets on a 40-man roster or the 25-man roster, it'll get updated mm-hmm. and usually still isn't accurate, but it's at least in the ballpark. Uh, yeah, well, so, so Salome had a funny, funny frame. Um, I want to ask you about another thing. You mentioned this a, a little bit ago, but that struck me as interesting. You, you were sort of, uh, well, you were discussing pop times, I think, with regard to Jackson, right? Yeah. And I, I just would, just so we can establish a baseline, I think two, is two seconds, is, is that major league? Yeah, average? I don't know if I'd put that on the, the scouting explain thing, but yeah, it's typically two, two oh oh is 50, one nine five is 55, one nine oh is 60, and, and then obviously you can kind of figure out the rest of it. And the idea is if you graded a guy as a 60 arm and it is not somewhere close to one nine oh, you have to explain quick release, slow release, good feet, bad feet. But if it's right around there, then you don't have to explain why you can imagine what an average release looks like. Okay. Now, um, uh, you also now pop time. Just to be clear, right? That's the from the moment the ball hits the catcher's glove to when it hits his second, or you know, the, whoever is covering second base yeah. on a throwdown. Correct. Okay. And obviously, in a showcase, guys don't get into a full squat, and so you can basically, if it looks like they're cheating, you can usually add one or even two tenths to their their grade. Sometimes guys will throw even faster in games because they'll get kind of kind of spooked and get kind of rushed and get rid of the ball really quickly. And it's also important to note that. A shortstop covering second or second baseman covering second on a steal attempt, the ball at his head and the ball on the bag is like another tenth. So if a guy's rushing and getting you know one eight, but it's always off the mark, you'd rather have you know one nine on the bag, which usually can be an adjustment. Like that's you know you can usually make that adjustment. So mm-hmm. just to give some context, because some people will too liberally take a pop time, which if you're new to scouting, it's hard to reliably get a pop time anyway. Um, but you can take that and be like, oh, he threw a 178. I was like, well, I mean, technically a lot of guys could throw a 178, but if it's in center field, it doesn't really matter. Right, uh, so you're looking for the length of time it takes him to competently perform that. Uh, yeah, ideally. Yeah. So that's kind of a baseline. If you're getting a bunch of times in games that are 190, that's probably a 60 arm. But if it's not, then he's doing something else really well. And if it's on the bag every time, then he's doing a really good job. So that that's kind of another way scouts – Obviously, to give a grade on a 2080 scale on a scouting report, like to have objective data, like whether it's a stopwatch or like we've talked about, if a ball goes out in BP here when he's swinging as hard as he can, all things being equal, that's a 50 power or whatever. Like to have as much objective data as they can so that, cause they're, as many people in their jobs are terrified of being wrong. Right. Uh, then they, you know, want to have that number to work off of. And so since they don't use miles per hour off the hand for catcher throws, that's the objective thing they use and then kind of adjust from there based on the conditions. Um, you, you invoked Johnny Bench and that, that was interesting to me, not just for what it might say about Johnny Bench, uh, but th- this idea of, Scouting, well, and, and this became sort of a reality or in part a reality because I think was it last year, or the year before, um, a a, lar- a pretty large collection of historical scouting reports were released into the public. Um, and, yes, and those were those were fun to read. But I'm curious, like I never th- I never thought once about Johnny Bench's pop time. But was he he was elite in this way, even compared to modern catchers? Well, I I can't say that I've actually watched video of him throwing down, but I know when scouts will give like a 
like a newer stout, an idea of how, like the thing I just did about how the, the pop time works in the scale. Pudge Rodriguez is typically the example they give of pop times, which I have seen him throw like, you know, one seven flat in a game before and stuff like that. Uh, and with older guys, you usually throw out an older name, and sometimes it would be an all-glove, no-hit catcher that no one's heard of because he's from the 50s. But when they're thinking, oh, really good defensive catcher, Johnny Bench, I don't know if that means he threw one sevens or he's just a good defensive catcher, and so that's the idea of how good that guy should be in a defensive hole to throw that quickly. I can't confirm that's true, but that's kind of the name that gets thrown around pretty often. So I guess that's why I threw it around in case we have some unlikely 60-year-old listeners. Do you – Do you, there seems to be some – there would be some merit uh, or some pleasure involved in um, sort of writing, like today, just going back and watching video of a historical player and and att- attempting to uh, to grade some of his tools based on what you see. I mean, do, what, what do you think about that sort of exercise? Wait, what sort of exercise is that? You kind of cut off for a second. Oh, sorry. Uh, the, the exercise of, of looking at, if you, you know, whatever you can find of it, any footage of historical players and uh, put, attempting to uh, put a grade on some of the tools of that player? Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it doesn't hurt. And I, I know when we watch games, uh, we would say, you know, hey, that, that curveball is so good, you could watch it from the home, the home behind uh, the pitcher angle on TV and tell that that's probably better than 50 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And obviously you can get 100, if, as long as the camera angles are right, uh, you can get 100% of what the scout in the park would get on uh, run times to first or on pop times, although sometimes the camera angles don't show you the beginning or end of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know scouts that'll watch games on TV, like especially the big league games for their team, and do that. Uh, obviously, they don't show enough to do you know, BP raw power and stuff, but especially in the big leagues with hit tools, you know what the guy's history is. You know it's going to be somewhere between 45 and 55. You can watch him for, say, five games like a scout would, mm-hmm. and or even more if you're just a fan that watches all the games, um, see, like, oh, he has trouble with this pitch, uh, he's good with that pitch, his bat speed looks like it's around. Like, you can kind of get pretty close to it because the scouts in the park, especially in the big leagues, are typically just sitting behind home plate watching them. And so they have a better idea of how to grade the pitches and are really tuned in on what's going on and who's who and what they're probably trying to do, whereas at home maybe you're doing other stuff and half paying attention and, you know, watching some other things or watching the catcher. Uh, you're reasonably seeing a lot of the same stuff they're seeing in that regard. Now, defensively with jumps and stuff like that, you're nowhere close to being able to do what they do. And I think grading pitches is very difficult. And, I mean, even I, with pitchers I've seen, like I saw Alex Cobb a bunch in the minors, I know what his pitches look like, and watch him on TV and be like, I think that was a 55 curveball, but I'd have to sit back there to be sure. And sometimes I'll run into a, a scout that does mostly minor league stuff that say, oh, I did coverage with the Rays. I was like, hey, is Cobb's curveball at 55? And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, maybe 60 on the right day, probably 55. I'm like, all right, so now I have some sort of frame of reference for that's what that curveball looked like on TV, and now I can kind of figure out some other ones. And you can generally say that's probably a 50 or 55 by watching on TV, but I don't like to do it quite that often. So I think there's something to be said for the beginner starting to, especially if there's not a lot of games around him, beginning to begin by trying to do it on TV and getting used to it, especially with the big leagues where you can be like, was that a 60? And people will know, oh, yeah, you can read the Baseball America report from two years ago. It was a 60 then, so it's probably a 60 now. Uh, but there's obviously some pitfalls and some limitations. Is there, I mean, is, at what point, um, because obviously with scouting, you, you're trying to provide an estimate of the player's either present uh, value or future value. Um, at what point... 
At what point or after how many plate appearances in the major leagues does that scouting report and those grades begin to essentially – at what point do you begin to weight the major league output more than you do uh, those grades originally? And I think of someone like Delman Young, for example, right, who uh, I'm presuming had a – above average hit tool as a prospect. Well, we also didn't know about his anti Semitic leanings at the time either. I don't so. know that's not one of the grids. That's maybe more in the the margins you make that kind of note. <laughs> but but what uh, I mean at what point are you like, oh, it's just not working out for him. Yeah, it's well in his case and I think because so a lot of times in front offices we'll talk about like when is it like we haven't seen this guy this year. Can we reasonably expect last year's report to be accurate? And it obviously changes player player to player. Um, but typically it is, and when it's not, or when you're talking about a guy that went in the first round out of college and then never got out of double A, what do we miss? It's usually he got hurt, his body changed one way or another, usually it's put on a bunch of weight and got less flexible and all that, or we were just completely wrong and he hit in every level and then got to double A and just couldn't hit, which is typically, if, if that's the way it went, that he basically hit everywhere and then got to a level and just couldn't do anything and never figured it out, that's usually more of a mental thing than a physical thing. Mm-hmm. So it's usually mental injury or weight. Those are like the three options for how you completely miss on a prospect. That's probably accurate 95% of the time when someone's like, how did we miss? It's usually some combination of those. Um, so I, I forgot what the original question was, but <laughs> I think well, that I was, was trying to go was, somewhere. At what point do you begin to weight the, the major league data? Oh, yeah. So, so that's, I think, how – you can disregard stuff. Like Delman Young, I think, has put on 30, 40 pounds since his minor league reports. So weight and, was part of it. Yeah, so weight was part of his, and I think it was, you know, weight stands for discipline in general, stands for looseness at the plate, stands for, you know, probably uh, bad control and bad speed and flexibility and also speed and defense. Like, it can stand for a lot of things. So in his case, I think that happened, and then he just regressed, but didn't become terrible. Like, it didn't spell the end of his career, in part because he was so talented when he was in shape. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing. The other thing is we're going to have the tools for all the big leaguers on fan graphs at one point, so I've been thinking about this a lot, because I'm obviously not going to get traditional scouting looks at all these guys, and some of them have been in the big leagues for, you know, 15 years, so it's not like anybody that saw them recently in the minor leagues is around either, and... You know, I know some guys, not some, I know a number of guys that do big league coverage, but typically it's at certain points of the year, certain teams or certain parts of the country. Like, I can't just send out 10 texts and get a guy that saw, uh, you know, Jeff Supon pitch in the last five years. That's the guy I'm looking for. Or maybe I can, but any given player might not be able to. Um, so the idea is then what tools can be defined by what's on the on the player page already. Mm-hmm. So hit tool, if you've got 4,000 at-bats and you're relatively – uh, you know, when you strip out luck relatively consistent year to year, we really don't need a scouting report. Like, we could tell you things that describe why he is a 50 hitter, but if he's hitting 260 with a 322 on base over the last six years and doesn't vary more than 10 points from any of those and has done it for, you know, 5,000 at bats, I don't need any more information. Because what we're trying to predict is what he would do over a luck adjusted five year period, and we already have that. Right, because he, he did it. Yeah, so like, what are we trying to predict at this point? We already have what happened. Now, if he changed a lot during those five years, or appears to have changed now, or has 70 bat speed, and there's some stories about he's in the best shape of his life, and he's changed his approach, and he's a new man, then, you know, then there's some tweaks based on, you know, non-qualitative or quantitative data. That's, that's fine. But in most cases, for big leaguers of note that people know, 
we're going to be okay uh, doing that, doing the hit tool based off of that. And the power tool for game power is the same way. There's obviously some spikes here and there, and but and then raw power. If you've seen them in a home run derby or you know their reputation as an amateur, and also scouts that are getting super recent looks but have seen them in the last 12 months can usually give you that. But also players in the minor leagues are trained to hit the ball as far as they can because that improves their marketability. Big leaguers don't care because uh, their numbers speak more than how far they hit the ball in BP. So a lot of them don't show you all their power. So the home run derby is actually very instructive for some of these guys when you don't really know where it is yet. Or where it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, speed, obviously you have to stopwatch. So you just do that off of TV pretty easily. You just sometimes have to wait a long time to get a reliable time. Defensively, UZR can sometimes be very useful, sometimes is useless. We'll need some eyeballs on that of varying degrees. Arm is, you can usually do with eyeballs also. Uh, fastball, I think you could do completely off of pitch FX, off of movement command. And velocity and probably do an adjustment for deception, you know, up a grade down or right, up. Right, right. And then off speed pitches, you probably have to do mostly off of eyeballs with some, maybe some information from, from the data and then command and sort of control. Although I only really do command. You can do, I think mostly with the numbers, but there needs to be some awareness of, you know, sort of the, the physical components that go into it for, cause those things can, you know, change a lot based on, you know, stuff going up or down or, mechanical adjustments. You kind of need to know where he is in the progression of these things, but the numbers can usually tell you, I don't know, 80% of what you need to know. Yeah, right, right. Well, because, because the, I mean, that makes sense, right? Because as you mentioned, the point of the grades is to provide a rough sketch of the numbers that that player would produce. Yeah, and so what we're trying to do with these is what is he going to do next year? And so what he's done in the last five years can sometimes be 99% of that and sometimes can be you know, 50% of that when you're talking about established big leaguers. And the minors, the numbers are, I I won't say useless at, like, rookie ball levels. They almost are. At low A and high A, they're a little bit of it. Triple A, it's a bigger amount. But obviously, everybody knows these quad A sluggers can put up huge numbers and not really even be a big leaguer of any kind. So it's obviously that whole sort of sliding scale of how much is scouting and how much is stats. And it obviously changes, you know, player to player on individual basis. But that's... That's a conversation I've had with the Daves about, well, what would be the algorithm for fastball? Because I know we don't need any data other than what's on there, but for deception, I'd like to be able to adjust it. So how do we do that? And then, you know, obviously hit tool and power tool, like I said, can be almost completely that, but I'd, I'd like to have the ability to change it if I need to. Uh, but in most cases, I don't think I'll need to. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 No, I like that. I like this idea. Oh, believe me, I had that idea for a long time. <laughs> well, it's 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 helpful though because it helped, then you can say, oh, this is, oh, well, I know what that you say, oh, I know what that major leaguer looks like. Well, yeah. and that's and that's part of the reason that I wanted to do it. One for just sort of sake of completion because eventually you write up a bunch of guys in AAA. Three years later, you have a bunch of big leaguers done already. So why not do all of them? Right. That's sort of the OCD part of my brain that wants to do it. But also, I get so many questions from people that are you know sort of trying to get into the stuff that I write, and they're like. I don't, you're telling me what Lucas Giolito is. I see the video. I know technically what it looks like, but I don't know what that stuff compares to. Is that Verlander or is that Strasburg or is that, you know, Freddie Garcia in his pro, like I don't know what guy that is. And I'm like, I'd love to have tool grades that are adjustable and sortable of every big leaguer and even some retired guys of what they were at their peak so you can look at it, but we don't, but we can. <laughs> so we will. I'm uh, waiting with bated breath. 
What is bated breath? I hear that all the time. Yeah, I think it's B A. Is it like there's bait in your breath to lure me into your mouth? Uh, no, with bated breath. Here, I can help you out here. Uh, it's from the verb. Oh, I see. It's from the verb bait. Oh, like abated, right? Like abated. Um, it means reduced or lessened. It means like you're like you're holding your breath. <laughs> you're conserving energy, waiting for it to happen. Well, you're you know, oh, like I'm holding my breath in anticipation. Well, yeah, that's kind of terrifying. Yeah. A little, little stalkerish, but all right. Oh, no, and it, another catcher converted that I thought of that I just wrote up, uh, JT Realmuto. Oh, yeah, that's right, Realmuto. Real Muto. Which I'm told didn't even catch in high school, like maybe other than a bullpen, and they just drafted a shortstop out of high school, and they're like, hey, you're going to catch now. And he's like, okay. <laughs> and the guy that I'm running up now for the Orioles, Chan Sisko, uh, I believe only caught his senior year of high school and then was taken in the second round as a catcher. It... How do some of these? How do these guys react always when they're told, "Hey, you're catching well." Them. Before you take a guy that high, uh, there is some conversation. Like I mentioned with Shavis, like scouts go to him. I remember I saw Shavis during the spring, and I said, "Hey, have you talked to him about being a catcher?" Yeah, a group of us did. It was sort of like all the guys were asking each other, "Hey, have you asked him this?" Like I don't want to be the only guy, but I don't want to, you know, tip. He'll say it to one of his friends. He doesn't want to tip that he thinks he might be a catcher and let everybody know. Right. And eventually, ten of them will be like, "All right, we all want to ask him. Why don't we all show up early one day and we'll all just ask his coach, and then he'll come over and then we'll ask him and see what he says." And he says, "Yeah, okay." And then a similar thing happens with Christian Arroyo, and they're like, "Yeah, okay." He doesn't really want to. Got it. It's usually, but then when we're like the last year, I talked about how there's a team that wants to take one or two conversion guys every year, just because we're in the 20th round. Let's take a guy that can play hitter and pitcher. Uh, not necessarily. There's a guy on the on the Orioles list that I'm going to write up that'll be in the other section that they drafted as a hitter because he's a hitter and wants to hit, knowing he was going to fail because they didn't think he could hit that much, but had to give him a year and let him fail before he would agree to be a pitcher because they wanted him to want to be a pitcher. And then he got on the mound and hit 98, and they're like, see, we told you. And he's like, okay, fine. <laughs> Which is hilarious to me that this guy doesn't know. But, I mean, imagine yourself. He, this guy's at a big SEC program. He's playing re- relatively regularly. He only threw, like, one inning the whole spring, and there happened to be an Orioles scout there that saw it and goes, oh, shit, that's pretty good. Uh, and and then they bring him in, and he's like, oh, I hit it in an SEC program. I didn't even really pitch. I want to hit. Like, that, that makes sense, I guess. Mm-hmm. But there's a gap of talent. Yeah, and then and then he finds out he can't hit, and they're like, okay, now <laughs> now do this thing. And it's actually similar to what happened to Casey Kelly. They want to take him in the first round. He wants to hit. Some teams thought he could hit and play shortstop and, you know, check all these boxes. And the Red Sox thought he could pitch, and they're like, you know what, we like you so much, we're going to let you hit and let you find out where you, where you fit. And then he basically didn't hit out a rookie ball, and they're like, okay, you're going to pitch. And he's like, yeah, you're right, I'll just pitch. <laughs> um, and I'm, uh, I'm obviously simplifying this, but that's essentially how it worked out. Kylie, I was going to uh, examine the Nationals system with you, but uh, we've, we've already had roughly the 45-minute mark, uh, and I have an obligation, and uh, so I'm going to suggest that we leave it for next time. Well, but, the fun part is there may be three more lists up before next week's podcast. Get out. I got the Orioles, the Braves, and the Yankees. All of the uh, research is complete on all three of them. Get and, out. And I am putting up videos and making final adjustments and writing lists now, so you would think by next Friday I'd be able to finish all three. Yeah, you'd think. Uh, I mean, given my history, I probably won't get all three done, but I'd yeah. like to think I will. Yeah. That's really well, 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 the Nationals will be another team we discuss at that point, too. All right, so hopefully we'll have four teams to talk about. Real pleasure, uh, Kylie McDaniel. 
I think by next Tuesday I will have finished all of my A's research. So we might have five teams to talk about. Get the hell out. Well, i got to speed this thing up if I'm going to finish in time. Hmm. And also, there's no baseball going on. Although, I just talked to uh, Ron, one of our guys out in California, and there's, like, some tournaments and college stuff going on he's going to go to. So we'll have some uh, we'll some draft content coming up. But I don't think there's anything going on near me for a couple weeks at least. Yeah, that's already starting, huh? Oof. And I think my Dominican trip isn't for a couple weeks either. Woo! Oh, yeah. Woo, indeed. Woo! <laughs> All right. Hey, it's Kelly. The portion of the show. <laughs> Kelly, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for joining us in Fangraphs Audio. I'm Fangraphs lead prospect writer. Yes, you are. That is Kyle McDaniel, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. The lead prospect analyst. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.